Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. If I'm incorrect in what I've said, and if the Trump campaign is successful in this attempt to convince state legislatures to change their slate of electors, then I think that for sure this is going to be a second book, (laughs) without a doubt. That was Emily Conrad, author of The Faithless, her book on the Electoral College and what happened during the 2016 US presidential elections. She's back to talk to me about the 2020 US presidential election and the possibilities of real shenanigans and rogue electors who might vote against the candidates for president they were pledged to. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. My friends, it's the moment of truth. It could be a showdown full of electoral electricity and controversy, The Electoral College meets Monday, December 14th in what is expected to be the final leg of Joe Biden's journey to the White House as America's 46th US president. The Electoral College is expected to deliver President Trump the news he and his supporters have challenged with reports of vote rigging and manipulation on a massive scale that would make Joe Biden's victory deeply suspect. Well, now it's up to the electors, and then in another procedural step, on January 6th, a joint session of Congress meets to count the electoral votes and certify a winner. To be sure, to be sure, lots could happen, and perhaps, perhaps, there may be some last-minute surprises. Here to explain it all to me is my guest, Emily Conrad, author of the book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. It's my pleasure to welcome back Emily Conrad. You will remember her from an interview earlier on her brilliant book, Faithless, about rogue electoral college voters. She can explain a little bit more about that. And it's timely because we've come out of a very controversial, polarizing, fascinating, interesting, pick your own word, uh, presidential election here in the U.S., We know how that went, or do we? For the record, Joe Biden officially got 306 electoral votes, or did he? Donald Trump got 232 electoral votes, or did he? But the popular press says that Joe Biden is our next president. But we're going to ask Emily Conrad, who's the expert on this, what do you say? Well, we don't know how many electoral college votes each candidate has received because, in fact, the electoral college has not voted yet. So the electoral college will vote on December 14th, and we assume that the numbers will be correct. But as 2016 showed us, um, you had faithless electors, and uh, you could have electors that, that would decide not to vote according to their state's popular vote. And that is a possibility. Um, And so we don't exactly have the final numbers yet, but we have an educated guess of what the final numbers will be. So the 306-232 is not a done deal. Uh, Where where could it head? How could it finish up theoretically? 
and in the most extreme circumstances on either side? Well, to be honest, based off of my research and also based off of uh, conversations I've had with uh, this, I guess, this cohort of 2020 electors, I doubt that there will be something drastic um, or that the our, our perceived uh, notion of who will win will change. Uh, that being said, based off of the way that the Electoral College does operate, you cannot say with certainty that those will be the numbers. Um, and so that's that's something important to realize. When we went to vote in November, um, the reality was, <clears throat> or the reality is, is that we were simply voting for electors who would then vote for the president on our behalf. We were not voting for the president directly. And um, so basically, we, we don't really have a president-elect just yet. And so on December 14th, that will indeed change. And the Electoral College will vote. They will congregate. The electors will congregate in um, in their respective state capitals and then will cast their votes for president. Well, we're going to replay after this interview our earlier interview with you about your book. We had great feedback from that. So we're going to put it on if people uh, stay to the end. Give us a quick summary of how the Electoral College works. I mean, who decides? A lot of it is in the hands of state legislatures. Indeed. Um, so the way that the Electoral College works is that they always, oftentimes the news media presents it as a monolithic organization. In reality, it is not. It is um, based up of uh, 538 electors. And of course, as we know, each state has a different number of electors, um, but um, that is based off of a state's congressional representation. Um, so, for example, um, if you want to know how many electors your state has, you add the number of um, of number of House of Representatives uh, that you uh, members that you have, along with two that represents the Senate. That's how you get your number of electors. Um, so whenever you take a look, um, these and really whenever we vote in November, when we voted in November, what we are choosing is which slate of electors did we want to go and vote in the Electoral College. So the Democrats chose their own slate of electors in each individual state and the Republicans chose their own uh, electors in each individual state. Um, basically, what ended up happening is that if you voted Republican, you weren't voting for Donald Trump. You were voting for Republican electors that you would assume would vote for Donald Trump. And if you voted Democratic, you voted for Democratic electors that you assume would vote for Joe Biden. Um, then there are several legislative, uh, there are several legal processes in between uh, the November vote and the Electoral College vote. And, and that includes the votes being certified. And the legislature's um, basically saying that, yes, these are, are, are the electors that will represent these states. So that's what is currently going on. And this is one of the things what has made this election so contested. Um, basically, I think because Donald Trump faced such an electoral college uh, problem in 2016, um, there's almost perhaps what, what many scholars and what many politicos are describing as a Hail Mary of sorts. Um, basically, and my book delves into it, uh, there were several campaigns and lobbying efforts to prevent Donald Trump from securing the presidency in 2016. So Donald Trump is very much aware of the fact that the popular vote really doesn't mean very much, and even projected electoral college numbers don't mean very much until the electoral college actually votes um, on December 14th. Are you getting any feedback intel about rogue electors this time around? Um, you're not seeing coordinated efforts the way, you, the way that there was in 2016 for electors to change their votes. Um, in 2016, what, what we saw was really historically unprecedented. Basically, you had Republican electors being lobbied to change their votes. Um, you even had Democratic electors being lobbied to change their votes, all in an attempt to uh, keep Donald Trump from getting the, ne the necessary 270 majority in order to win. Um, this time around, you're not really seeing a coordinated effort. I have talked to several uh, Republican and Democratic electors 
And um, what you're saying is that you're saying maybe more of a grassroots, um, you know, letters here and there, phone calls here and there, but nothing like the, the number of death threats and um, the number of coordinated lobbying attempts in 2016. What you are seeing, however, is that we're seeing something extremely interesting in the fact that you have kind of a coordinated effort of uh, the campaign itself to bring, um, to basically question the results and kind of, you know, I would, I wouldn't say lobbying, but really bringing in, bringing into light the real mechanisms behind the Electoral College and really showing that state legislatures could, in fact, uh, the state legislatures actually do have some level of power over the Electoral College and that they could actually choose a whole other slate of electors that were not voted on in November, which, of course, most most voters didn't realize that they were voting for electors to start with. So it's bringing a lot of confusion and a lot of feelings of chaos into, I think, how Americans and how, how we are viewing the Electoral College and, and this entire 2020 election. There's a lot going on here during this election. The Republican Party are contesting vote counting in many states where the final vote officially or unofficially was close and even that's still winding its way through the legal and procedural process it's worth noting that the state legislatures are controlled mostly by republican yes and that's something that has been very interesting for me because i have continued my research uh past since you know my book was about 2016 but i've continued my research into 2020 and one of the things that has surprised me talking to electors both republican and democratic electors in states where um the vote is was contested um, both slates of electors believe that they will be the electors come December 14th. And that is very interesting for me as, as a researcher to talk with both of them and to get their perspective. Um, and I think it also shows the political polarization that exists in this country, um, perhaps the different echo chambers, um, because both, of, both, both Democratic and Republican electors think that they're going to be the ones um, so moving ahead, it's going to be extremely interesting to see if these attempts or, you know, even bringing this up in the minds of the state legislature's minds, if this could, in fact, have some level of impact over uh, the Electoral College. And of course, the major question is that if it does have some level of impact over the Electoral College, are we going to see more uh, calls for Electoral College reform? Um, coming up here in the upcoming in the upcoming years, um, I think that no matter who, no matter what the results of this um, of December fourteenth are, what you're going to see is that you're going to start to see a lot more cognizance about the electoral college and people really thinking, you know, how how does this work and how should it work. We're listening constantly to the drumbeat of election fraud, uh, depending on which network you tune into, and uh, vote rigging and ballot manipulation and other kinds of shenanigans. So if Donald Trump and his supporters and Rudy Giuliani, his attorney, believe in all of this, you would almost think they would say the only route now is the Electoral College yes. to right the ship. Basically, um, the only the only route, exactly as you said, is to have um, is to have state legislatures uh, question the results of the election to the point that they would appoint uh, their own slate of electors, um, who would presumably elect would presumably vote for Donald Trump. But actually, we do not know for sure who these individuals would vote for. There's a very mixed opinion, even among Republican pundits and experts. Rich Lowry, writing in Politico magazine, said the completely insane electoral college strategy was the headline on his opinion piece. And the subhead, the Constitution theoretically gives state legislatures, which we were just talking about, great power over elections. But that's not a reason to precipitate a constitutional crisis. Well, and, and this is really, uh, yeah, so many people, 
because the dialogue about the Electoral College, I think, thus far has been, do we approve the, or do we agree with the Electoral College or do we not agree with the Electoral College? Should it remain or should it be abolished? Many of these peripheral issues associated with the Electoral College have been overlooked by both Democratic and uh, Republican pundits alike. Um, whenever there were actually some some kind of some talk um, in some circles about uh, the Trump campaign really questioning the Electoral College, uh, even as early as September, I saw some articles about it. And at that point in time, I asked uh, some politicos that I knew, and they said that uh, any sort of attempts of this nature would be extremely unlikely. And one of the reasons why they said this is because of state laws and state election codes. And these were meant to safeguard uh, the electoral process and the electoral system. And I think that that is something that is extremely important to realize. This isn't there are individual state election codes and individual state election laws that do dictate uh, some over the Electoral College. Um, it's not just that Michigan has the same sort of um, the same sort of um, you know the same system as Georgia. Um, and I think that one of the things is that if Trump and the Trump campaign is successful at casting doubt over this, if there are any changes, you're going to really see a lot of uh, you're going to see a lot of backlash, and that that's really one of the things is that I mean you're going to see that being contested. Um, so I really think that it's going to be extremely interesting no matter what happens, uh, and and it's going to affect the future of the electoral college. If they were in some way successful or got close to overturning some of the vote in the states where there was um, narrow margins of victory, uh, you could see a lot of social unrest potentially. You know, we talk about a polarized nation now. It could be even more polarized and it could, I suppose, undermine uh, the dynamics of the electoral system. Well, and I think that that's something to consider. Um, and, you know, we're talking a lot, uh, what, what we're discussing are, are a lot of hypotheticals here. Um, that in, in my perspective, um, while there is a possibility of this happening, and I think that there's even a greater possibility of faithless electors, you know, acting on their own individual motivations, um, it's unlikely to change uh, the course of the entire election or to change the outcome of the election. Um, but really, uh, I mean, I think that you might see some progressive Democrats who support Bernie Sanders maybe, you know, put a vote or two towards that. I mean, that's not outside of the realm of possibility. That was certainly happening in 2016. Basically, every single Democrat elector who defected uh, from Hillary were, were Sanders supporters in the primary. And then you might have some Republicans who said, hey, I was never really quite on the Trump train, and maybe I will vote for one person or another to bring some level of, of uh, you know, notoriety to this person. So, uh, you know, in time for 2024, kind of give them a head start. I think that that is probably much more likely than the entire results of the vote changing. But I think what you're going to see, just because we're starting to realize that the Electoral College has might have some holes in it and that it has a lot of uncertainties about it, I think that what we're going to see is a massive public cognizance about the Electoral College. And hopefully what we'll start to see is just a lot more discussions about what it is, who becomes electors, how they become electors. Uh, for example, whether or not electors' names should be on the ballot. Um, when are electors chosen within a primary? Um, another question that I think definitely needs to be addressed is whether or not electors should be bound to the state popular vote. Um, and should they be bound to a state popular vote, say, if a candidate die, you know, is sick? Um, and really, another question is whether or not states should continue with this winner-take-all method of the Electoral College, or whether or not it should move towards maybe a congressional district model, such as Maine or Nebraska. But regardless of when we start to have these conversations, the entire nature of the Electoral College will change. 
And the electoral college will, you know, one change to the electoral college, even if it's not abolishing it, will have a lot of repercussions in our political system that I'm not sure that we have really thought of yet. So these are discussions that need to be had and need to be thought of very carefully. So Emily, what is your bet on Joe Biden being our 46th president? Is it a done deal so? I would venture to say that it is more or less a, um, a done deal. I, but at the same time, I think that we w- that having faithless electors, having rogue electors, is certainly not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, do I think that could there be enough people, or do I think that the Trump campaigns will be able to convince the the electors of multiple state, the legislatures in multiple states, to put in their own slate of electors? I just don't think that there's enough of a momentum to deny Joe Biden the 270. And that's really the, the question. It's it's not, can we, if it had been that it was, you know, you know, like 270, uh, you know, if, if it had mm, been extremely close, if it, if it was extremely close, I think that there definitely could have been a chance. The fact that the margins are so uh, large, it's almost like 2016 and what we saw then. Um, it's uh, getting, you know, those margins are very difficult to have a coordinated effort to change them. Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? I, I don't think it's probable. So there was great reaction to your most recent book, The Faithless, which looked at the 2016 presidential election. Is there a new book on the 2020 election? Well, I'm doing some, I'm definitely talking to electors and I'm getting a sense of of where it's going. And certainly if I'm incorrect in what I've said, and if the Trump campaign is successful in this attempt to convince state legislatures to change uh, electors, their slate of electors, then I think that for sure this is going to be a second book. (laughs) without a doubt. I'm enthusiastic to talk about the Electoral College. It's important that we understand the system so that, you know, as we move forward, that we can really think about ways that it should develop in the future, because the Electoral College is already changing with the binding elector laws that the Supreme Court decided on. The Electoral College has already changed. We need to make sure that it's changing in a way that's good for the country. Emily, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Keep up the writing. I look forward to a new book. Coming up next is an earlier interview this year I had with Emily Conrad on her book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. If you want to stick with us, it's great background and context for the interview you just heard with Emily Conrad. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Emily Conrad picked a significant yet sometimes a little-known topic among the public in her full-court treatment of the U.S. Electoral College. It's all in her new book, Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. I asked Emily to tell us what exactly is the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a very underreported topic. Uh, At least I believe that that to be the case. It comes out every four years and everybody talks about the Electoral College. And really the, the dialogue and the debate becomes, oh, are you for the Electoral College or against the Electoral College? However, there's not that much cognizance of what exactly is the Electoral College. How does it work? How do people become electors? What are the roles and the rights and the responsibilities of electors whenever after the November election? So in this book, I interviewed eight faithless electors from 2016. A faithless elector is somebody who is pledged to vote for the state's uh, popular vote, and the people uh, decided not to do that. In 2016, you had faithless electors on both sides of the aisle. You had Republicans who decided not to vote for Trump, and you had Democrats who decided not to vote for Hillary Clinton. I decided to interview eight of them, and uh, they shared with me their story, how they became electors, 
and eventually why they decided not to vote for their their uh, party's chosen candidate. Uh, we talk about how you gained access to these electors. Uh, that in itself is fascinating. But just to get some of the basics straight, there are two components to the presidential election process. There's the popular vote, the number of votes cast across the U.S., and then more arguably important, the electoral vote. And there are what? A total of 538 electoral votes with a majority of 270 needed to win the election. And then it's over to the electors in each state. What happens then? So uh, about a month after the November election, electors meet in their respective state capitals and they officially vote. And at this point in time, then the results are then sent to uh, Washington, D.C., and then they're read out loud on the inauguration day. What happens at the Electoral College vote, arguably you can say that the popular vote in November is just, I mean, technically people, when they go out to vote, they think they're voting for the president. They're actually voting for electors to vote on their behalf for president. And that is what is exactly what is enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, the electors are the ones who end up selecting the president, that you think about it, uh, when many people go to vote in November, many times they, the electors' names are not even on the ballot. People think they're voting for president. In reality, they're voting for an elector who supposedly has pledged to vote for the chosen candidate. Okay, so let's look at 2016. And that, that was a tumultuous election on many levels. Two very strong, passionate candidates who brought out the passions in the American people, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And the country was then certainly at a turning point. It's at a turning point today. Momentous change was in the air. Everything was up for grabs from our religious liberties, economic sovereignty, and many of our cherished fundamental and civil rights. 2016 produced a record number of faithless electors. There was nothing like this in recent history. We had the most faithless electors in modern history in the last election cycle. Before you might see one faithless elector here or one faithless elector there, this was the first time that you saw a large group of faithless electors. And what is very interesting is that this happened on both sides of the aisle. This happened in the Republican Party and also in the Democratic Party. And uh, it's true, whenever you were kind of framing your question, you said 2016, you had these two very strong candidates come out. I start my book actually before uh, Hillary was chosen as the Democratic uh, nominee and before Trump was chosen as the Republican nominee. One of the things that really I found very interesting as I interviewed these electors was that many of them were chosen to be electors before it was clear that Trump would be the nominee or Clinton would be the nominee. They were chosen in the midst of very robust primaries where you saw so many Republicans vying for uh, for the, the nomination. And you also saw the Democratic Party kind of divided between two very strong candidates. Uh, you had, you know, one side you had Clinton um, and then on the other side you had Bernie Sanders. So the story of these faithless electors actually doesn't start in, in November. It starts uh, before and really starting with these uh, with these primaries and the electors being chosen by um, to become electors. And the electors are chosen, and it's very difficult to say if, if, you, if you ask, how are electors chosen? It's remarkably decentralized, and every state has a different way of selecting their electors. And even within, a, within one state, two different parties may select their electors in two different ways. How did you gain access to these electors? Why did they agree to talk to you? Well, to be, well, actually, I mean, I just kind of, I hate to say this, I don't want to sound like a stalker. I kind of stalked them on social media and I reached out to them. And this is one of the things is that electors do not have anonymity. And we saw that in 2016. Their research has shown that almost 100%, 98, 99%, and probably it's 100% of, ele of Republican electors were lobbied, were actively lobbied by groups and also by individuals to change their vote from Donald Trump to another candidate. The way that this came about is that their personal information, their social media, 
uh, their addresses, their work addresses, email addresses were started, they started to be posted up online. People said, okay, we need to, um, a lot of uh, progressive movements said we need to lobby these, these uh, Republican electors to switch their vote. And many of the Republican electors were completely bombarded by emails, boxes of mail being sent to their homes. The internet has made it so that we really don't live in an era of anonymity. So I was able to find most of these electors. And um, after a little bit of communication, uh, they agreed to share their story with me. And I have, um, and even before I published the book, I gave them the opportunity to review their chapters for inaccuracies. What kind of people are they? Are they politically affiliated, politically connected? Are they housewives? tradespeople, professionals, where did he come from? The, the, the electors that who I interviewed, and of course, you have to realize these are electors that decided to vote faithlessly. So there is a little bit, um, they do have that one similarity. I was interested because they are very, they're a very diverse group of individuals, both on the Republican side and also on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, I interviewed electors from Georgia and also from Texas. In that grouping, uh, you had a Hispanic, uh, very strong fundamentalist Christian. You had a political science professor and you had a former refugee from South Vietnam. I mean, this is a very diverse group. Um, then on the Democratic side, you, I, it, I interviewed two Hispanic millennials two Native American activists, community college graduate who worked in technology, among others. And so whenever you start adding in the, the, these, these people are very interesting and they're quite diverse. A lot of people think that the Electoral College is made up of um, people who are politically connected, people who donate a lot of money. And there is a certain degree of that, but that is not the group that will likely vote faithlessly. And the Electoral College, whenever you start delving into it, you realize that it is actually made up of people who are just normal, everyday individuals. Um, a big part of that also depends on how they are selected. In some states, electors are chosen by their state party leadership. I venture to say that in those states, these people would be slightly more politically connected. This is kind of a gift that you give to the parties, uh, the party faithful. In other states, uh, electors are voted on within a caucus or within a convention. In those states, you have a lot more grassroots activists become electors. You spoke to David Mullenix of Hawaii. He was an elector. He had a fascinating story. He was faithless. He was on the Democratic side, correct? Yes. He gave his vote to Bernie Sanders. He did. And Tell us about that. Yes. So, so David Mullinex has long been a progressive activist for a number of causes, starting from when he was a, a young, well, he was a young man. Um, now, of course, he's quite a bit older. And one of the things that he really focused on whenever we, we were talking together was that he only joined the Democratic Party in order to get Bernie Sanders elected. And he was a, he was a strong campaigner for Bernie Sanders. So in his mind, whenever they had the Hawaii Democratic primary, 70% of Hawaii Democrats supported Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. And, um, and then whenever you had the DNC, I think that David Mullinex was very upset by what he saw at the DNC. Actually, two of them, the electors who I interviewed were actually delegates to the DNC, Robert Satyakam and Michael Baca. And it's very interesting to compare and contrast their stories. But um, for many of the more progressives, especially of David Mullinex, when they saw um, what happened at the DNC, they began to perhaps lose a bit of faith in the Democratic Party. And whenever it was clear that Hillary Clinton was not going to win, um, at least David Mullinex said, well, this is the opportunity to really give all those Bernie supporters an electoral college vote, because in his mind, Bernie, the, the nomination had been stolen from Bernie Sanders to begin with. Now, only five candidates in U.S. history have won an election by losing the popular vote and winning or deadlocking the electoral vote. One of those elections was the Hillary and Trump dust-up. Tell us about that. It does tell you something about the last election, how passions were running so high that we had these seven rogue electors 
You did have, as, as I mentioned, many of the Republican electors after, um, after the November election were actively lobbied to change their vote from Trump. And many of the arguments that were given was that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And so electors should follow that. I feel like that was a bit of a flawed argument. Um, the rules of the Electoral College and both, both candidates were attempting to win the Electoral College are fairly clear. That being said, it did add to a lot of tensions in the air. And I think that the, the national popular vote argument is a driving force of why this is so important and why the Electoral College needs to be explored. That being said, at the same time, I feel like the national popular vote argument and saying, oh, the Electoral College versus the popular vote it really um, simplifies an issue. Um, in my research, there are really gaping holes that exist in the Electoral College. Um, you have 538 individuals. Um, most people, before they, they vote for president, I mean, in November, they think they're voting for president. They don't realize they're actually voting for an elector. Most people have no idea in their, how their state's electors are even chosen, what their names are. Until we really have a public understanding of what the Electoral College is, of course, people, whenever you just see a, a candidate's name on the ballot and you don't realize that you're voting for an elector, of course, people are going to be upset after the fact if, if they're if they're not educated about what exactly the Electoral College is beforehand. Well, of course, that's what Democrats kept reminding us after the last election. Oh, Hillary won the election by the popular vote. It was stolen from her. And then, of course, they brought in Russian collusion and so on. But that's the way the system was designed by our founders. Yes, the Electoral College system was a system of compromises from the very beginning. And one of the things I always like to point out was that when the Electoral College was ideated, political parties did not yet exist. The role of electors, um, if you take a look, and of course, I'm no constitutional scholar, although my book does have background, um, have historical background and has a few different chapters of very important incidents in U.S. history that has shaped the nature of the Electoral College. One of the reasons why the Electoral College was, um, was, was started to begin with, you think about when the Constitution was enacted, there were limited methods of communication and transportation, and the founders were very concerned that voters would just vote for their, their state's favored son because there was a lack of understanding of what other options existed out there in the country. And even in the, in the early days of the Electoral College, they stipulated electors had two Electoral College votes, and one of them, one of those votes must be for someone who lives outside of their state, which is an interesting thing, and it's still in uh, the Constitution today. That's still a, that, that is still a rule. So you had, um, this was, was a primary concern. Now, as uh, parties began to become ingrained, in American politics, you began to see the Electoral College change. Um, electors would actively campaign saying, I'm, go I'm a Republican elector and I will vote for the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate. Um, that was a slow process, but I would say by, by the Civil War, for sure, that had already been ingrained. Well, of course, if the Electoral College wasn't created, there was always the possibility and risk that the heavily populated coasts could basically take the election and there would be diminished representation in the vast middle and the across the plains and so on. And the way that that you're uh, that's that a state's number of electors is determined is if you if you live in a state, you just add the number of representatives your state has with the number of senators to and that's the number of, uh, of, electro of electors that you have for your state. So it is very much, uh, you know, just how you, we have the Senate and the House of Representatives with one based off of, um, with one based off of population. This was the way to kind of create a, a system that would give weight to smaller states while at the same time allowing larger states to also have a certain amount of representation. As we head into the 2020 election in November, a lot on media about that and a lot of excitement. And it strikes me as we're going to have a, a record turnout. Are we likely to see the rise of even more faithless electors as passions run high on both the left and right? Now, there has been attempts to tamp down the ability of electors to go rogue, but how do you see it? 
I personally believe that we could see a larger number of faithless electors moving forward. Now, in May, we had two Supreme Court cases argued, and these Supreme Court cases were Chafello versus Washington and Colorado versus Baca. Chafello versus Washington is uh, one faithless elector out of Washington State, Brett Chafello, and a group of electors in Washington State decided to vote for Colin Powell rather than vote for Hillary Clinton. And they later had to pay a $1,000 fine. They were basically saying um, this fine is unconstitutional. And then in Colorado versus Baca, it's, uh, I also interview Michael Baca for my book. He was actually removed in the middle of the, his electoral vote. He attempted to vote for John Kasich for president, and he was immediately removed. Um, he claims that that was unconstitutional. Both of these cases were argued at the Supreme Court in May, and they were decided upon on in July. Well, the Supreme Court decided in a unanimous decision, which a lot of people weren't necessarily expecting, was that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. And at that point in time, you saw all of these articles coming out and the New York Times or these different, these different news organizations saying the Electoral College is fixed. And this is just one, the, one of the first steps of many to having a, the national popular vote nationwide. That being said, when you take a look, the Supreme Court ruled that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. Well, Many laws don't have any bind, and many states don't have binding elector laws. And that's a very important thing to realize going into 2020. Um, for example, Texas, where you had two faithless electors in 2016, the state legislature actually decided not to pass binding elector laws, um, saying that such laws would be unconstitutional. And so that's very important. And even in those states that do have binding elector laws, the cost of noncompliance is not necessarily substantial. Um, in many states, it just might be a simple fine. Um, it might not actually remove the elector, um, the faithless elector. Um, at the moment, the research that I have shows that only 14, 15 states actually have laws that can remove an elector in a faithless vote. So going into 2020, there is, there is a possibility for more faithless electors. In theory, and it's possible that Trump or Biden, one or the other, could win the electoral college or vote, but then you could have these faithless electors going rogue and tipping the election in a different direction. Is that possible? Would we not then have some kind of a constitutional crisis? What you would have is um, you probably wouldn't have enough electors to uh, go one way or another unless the election was very, very close. Say in 2016, 37 Republican electors would have needed to not vote for Trump to deny him the majority of 270. Now, if that would have happened, um, it's not that Clinton would have won. What would have happened then is that you would have had a contingency election inside of the House of Representatives and which each state would be given one vote. And wow. then the president would be determined in that way. The last time we've had this happen is in 1824. And uh, Andrew Jackson won a plurality of the popular vote and a plurality of the Electoral College vote. However, in the, in the contingency election, um, John Quincy Adams ended up on top. And then afterwards, you saw Andrew Jackson really say that the Electoral College was a bad thing. And he actively campaigned to get rid of it, saying, you know, I, uh, I won. I had more Electoral College votes and I had more popular vote. And John Quincy Adams still was able to win. Um, it, that is, a, that is a, an incident in history called the corrupt bargain. And I do discuss it act in my book. Well, a lot of the voting patterns in the Electoral College and uh, hanging chads of recent years sort of tells us the country is divided politically, almost down the middle. Yes. Um, but at, at the same time, and this is one of the, the topics that drew me to, um, to, to write this book, is that as I was as I first heard about the faithless electors, I began to think to myself, what is happening in American politics where you see both Republicans and Democrats willing to give up their entire political reputations for a faithless vote? What is going on with our, within our political, in, in such a time of, of polarization, 
that you're seeing people on both sides of the aisle doing something that's remarkably similar. I think what you're really seeing is a lack of confidence in, in both respective parties from a substantial group, from clearly a, a group that is substantial enough to be able to gain electors in the Electoral College. Kind of explains the rise of Bernie Sanders. And then you have Biden adopting a lot of his platform so that he can go out there with some kind of a mandate from the broader Democratic Party. But Trump seems to be a one man show uh, in, in this election. Um, and but you, you think back to 2016, which is the, the election that this book that the entire action of this book is geared around. Um, the reasons why um, why the, the electors who I spoke with were uh, disinterested in voting for, for Donald Trump were, were diverse. Um, you had a Ron Paul supporter who said, you know, um, and the Ron Paul, the liberty movement is still very strong within the Republican Party today. Um, you had a very strong Christian who said that uh, Trump doesn't match with my personal beliefs. And then finally, you had more of an establishment Republican candidate who thought to himself, you know, I'm, uh, I'm you know, the Republican Party is the party of Bush. Cruz, Rubio, I, um, I don't think I can vote for Donald Trump. You know, in 2016, you were also having this crisis. Looking ahead to 2020, I guess it just depends on wh who became electors in, the, in this cycle. And unfortunately, many people don't realize they haven't been paying attention. Um, the electors have already been chosen. Um, we just might not know their names yet. Now, you mentioned lobbying of electors last time around. There were suggestions that there could be attempts during the 2020 election to interfere with these electors by dodgy or foreign actors, by subtle influences or intimidating them. Is that possible? It is possible. Um, and I, when I first wrote this book, I was actually personally concerned that that could have been the case in, in the last election. You had Republicans and Democrats do that. Um, after talking with all of the electors who I interviewed, I can say that each one of them thought that they were doing the best that they could for their country based off of this position of enormous power that they were given. I don't think that, that there was no blackmail and there was no uh, coercion. At the same time, you look ahead to 2020, there are only 538 electors. They can easily be targeted. They have easily been targeted in that mass lobbying campaign in 2016. And many of the electors who I spoke with did receive a substantial amount of death threats in 2016. Uh, really? Yes. Um, they should have security details, some of them. Then. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you think about it, <laughs> you know, one of them was, uh, I mean, m almost all of them received death threats of some of some sort or another. And several of them were, were afraid for their lives. At one wow. point in time, one of the electors was, um, and this is a Democratic elector, um, was followed home by uh, by a car, and he was so scared that he um, he went into a safe house and he sent his children into another safe house. These are stories that really haven't been told. But you think about it, a lot of the electors who who I who I, who I spoke with, I mean, these are these are everyday people. These could be your neighbors. These can be your teachers. These are the people that you go to and you go shopping in the grocery store with. And and I mean, they're just everyday individuals given this position of enormous responsibility and power. And there's really not the public cognizance to protect them. Um, one of the people said, what would happen if I went to the local police? And this was another Democratic elector. He said, you know, I don't think that the local police even quite understand what the Electoral College is or that my, my life would be at risk. They would just think that maybe I'm kind of a crazy person. After a wee break, Emily Conrad will tell us more about those death threats. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Emily Conrad, author of Faithless, the untold story of the Electoral College. And we'll pick up from where Emily is revealing details of death threats to electors. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked her to give me some more details. 
Why were they being threatened? They're just doing their democratic duty. Well, just as, uh, you know, tensions were running high and um, and there are many people who believe that, that Hillary Clinton should have won based off of the national popular vote. When you had Republicans say you had lots of people say vote for this guy or else, um, then when you had uh, some of the Republicans who considered a faithless vote against Trump, they also received death threats on the right side. So, I mean, there, there were death threats coming from, I think, the left and the right. Um, when you had Democrat electors saying that they were not going to vote for, for Clinton, they also received death threats. It makes it very difficult to say, oh, this is, this is the group that was threatening. I mean, they were receiving mm-hmm. threats from, from, every, from every single angle. Have we a new slate of electors this time around? Yes, um, but that well, actually, it's it's very difficult to say. This is the thing why why the electoral college is such a difficult topic is that basically every single state chooses their electors differently. In some states, you see the electors kind of reappear year after year after year, having because they win the same sort of uh, they 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 get their elector position maybe through a state party committee or that sort of thing. And they come back year after year. In other states, you have a new slate of electors come out every, you know, every four years, or you might have one or two that, that come back. Every state is different. And if anything, if, if people are interested in this topic, I do encourage them to, to read this book and to really join in this debate and join in the dialogue. I think that transparency is key here. We need to understand and people need to understand, how are your electors chosen? Have you had the same elector for the last 20 years? Um, maybe in your state you have. Uh, and I think that, that this is an important topic that people need to explore. Um, because it's so decentralized in 50 states and the District of Columbia, it, it really is also going to re- require, I think, uh, local media and local activists and local people who are interested locally to look into this issue. Did he get paid for this job? They do not get paid, um, mo- but however, most elect, most I think many states provide a travel stipend because they do have to go to the state capitol on that one day to cast their vote. So um, they do receive a travel. Many do receive a travel stipend, but nothing else other than that. So they go to the state capitol. Do they go into a voting booth or? fill out a form? Is it done electronically? They, they fill out a form. Um, the, normally there is a ceremony and people will fill out their forms and most of them do have closed ballots. Um, I think all of them have closed ballots and then people, if there's a faithless vote, people decide to own up to it after the fact. That being yeah. said, in 2004, there was a very interesting incident in Minnesota where uh, John Edwards' name was written down for both the president and the vice president. Instead, somebody wrote down John Edwards twice instead of John Kerry for president. What ended up happening after that was that nobody owned up to that vote. <laughs> so uh, we don't know who was the faithless elector in that case. Are they sort of anonymous figures? I mean, you brought them to life and you identified them. Amazing job. Well done. But do they give interviews after they cast a vote or before? Do they talk to the media? Are they kind of mini celebrities in their local communities? Uh, it depends upon the elector, to be honest. And you had some electors who u- utilized this uh, before the fact to say, you know, I'm unhappy with my party. And I'm going to vote faithlessly. And this is why Um, kind of using it in more of an activist sort of role. And then you also had electors who said, well, I know my rights and responsibilities an elector. The Constitution says I can vote for whomever I want and I will just do my vote. And um, and that that's that. Uh, That was the case for Bill Green, one of the electors out of Texas who voted for Ron Paul. He uh, he didn't tell anybody he was going to vote faithlessly before, and then he voted faithlessly. And then after that, he went on vacation, didn't take any, <laughs> didn't take any interviews or anything. Um, I ended up getting in contact with him after the fact, and he was very happy to share his story. But he said that he just wanted to just kind of remove himself from that media, I guess that media uh, the media craziness. I'm sure some of them take a lot of criticism for their decision and a lot of flack from party faithful? 
for being faithless? Oh, for sure. Um, and it's it's very interesting. I um, I wasn't that aware of the faithless electors when when it was happening, and it was only after the fact that I began to listen to news media about the faithless electors. I, they were being criticized by Party Faithful as well as by um, by major news outlets on both sides. So I thought that was extremely interesting um, looking ahead. And I wondered, what was it that they were willing to risk their political reputation for this faithless vote? Many of them were willing to do that because they believed what they were doing was the best for the country. And there's really not much prescription against it. Now the Supreme Court has said that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. So in those states that have binding elector laws, then Yes, it is illegal. Um, but in states where there is no such law, this is completely allowed by the Constitution. Well, we just have to wait and see. You might have another book after this election. I, I, I truly might. And I would be very honored if people were to share their stories of faithless, of their, their elector story with me. Um, there were many narratives that I thought uh, could eventually arise that, unfortunately, I was, um, that I was unable to, to kind of uncover and if you have any listeners who are electors in 2016 and that would love to share their uh, that would be interested in sharing their story, I would love to hear it, uh, to be honest. Um, you had a lot of Republican electors who were, um, of course, lobbied to change their vote and then decided not to. Um, and I even heard in one case, I think it was an I, I heard, overheard a um, an interview from an elector, a female uh, elector from Tennessee, and she said that she was even offered money not to vote for Donald Trump. Now, I don't know what that meant, but I'm very interested if people have an elector story to share, I would love to hear it. Well, we can give out all your contact information at the end of this show. Any other subtle hints or insights about this coming election and potential faithless electors? Well, I do think that um, that many of the issues that were facing both part that both parties faced in 2016 were not necessarily fully addressed. I think that Democrat, the Democratic Party may have faithless electors, uh, particularly from the Bernie Sanders group. And the Republican Party may also have faithless electors, especially from perhaps those who kind of more of the party establishment before Donald Trump became president. And I think that the coronavirus has made it perhaps slightly more complicated. And the fact that when you had these conventions and caucuses, that is normally when an elector was chosen. I'm not sure how that that worked this time around. And so looking ahead, you know, I, I if I were to say if I were to make uh, any sort of predictions, I think that this election, of course, might be dragged out. Um, and I think that faithless electors may become uh, an incre uh, another factor in the equation that a lot of people are not considering. There's varying opinions about the outcome of this election. It could go anyways, of course, but it could be very close. It could drag out for days. I just heard this morning on radio an analyst suggesting it could hinge on the Hispanic vote. COVID-19 plays into it, obviously. The passions that run deep in the Democratic side could get expressed in various ways. And then there is a, a very strong vote out there for Donald Trump as well. But the last election was only won by a small number of votes in a bunch of swing states. Yes. That is the case. When people don't understand the Electoral College, um, they immediately, when they see that, they immediately start thinking, well, why do we even have this? Then the debate becomes, should we have it? Should we not have it? And one of the things that I feel is very important, um, one of the reasons I, I wrote this book is that you take that uh, debate aside. We need to understand what is the system that we have. You know, we talked about electors being threatened. Um, there's possibility for you know, bad faith foreign or domestic actors to try to manipulate the Electoral College. I think that we need to really have a discussion about what this institution is. Because if we don't, then basically that, that narrative, is it good or is it bad, will just continue to perpetuate. And people really will not understand what is the system that we have. And it can, I think that it could be, it could be manipulated at some point in time. Um, and you saw kind of in 2016, perhaps 
this was the just kind of a signal of what could be to come. So are you saying, Emily, that there should be some slight tweaking of the Electoral College or it should be reformed or protected or you're not saying get rid of it? I'm saying that we need to look at it. Um, it. It's it's one of these things that when people take a look at the Electoral College, they think, oh, I like it. I don't like it. Well, that that's just such a simple <laughs> that that's such a simplistic way of looking at what we have. And and then people say, oh, well, the founders wanted this. The founders wanted that. At the same time, people don't, aren't, aren't paying attention. When are electors chosen? Are they chosen during the primary? Are they chosen during the, the general election when the, the party's nominee are, are, is already obvious? Um, how are electors chosen? In several states, um, for example, you have a, you, know, you asked who are the electors? In many states, they are chosen directly by state party leadership. Um, this is the way that Bill Clinton was an elector in the last election. This is also a way that Christine Pelosi was an elector in the last election. And so you do start to see where where people are kind of where the Electoral College can become kind of an institution of party establishment very, very easily. And I think that most people actually kind of assume it is. And that was mm. interesting to me. Um, if you start asking about the Electoral College, people don't realize that it, that the Electoral College could actually be made up of normal people. I guess a lot of people's notions of the Electoral College until recently, for sure, until maybe your book came out in some people's minds, was it rubber stamping the democratic will of the people? Really, that was it. If, you know, to do otherwise was not thinkable. Yes. And and I really loved talking with every single elector I interviewed in this book and hearing their life stories and why they why they decided to make this decision. I they came from all different corners of the country. They were belonged to different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. For me, it kind of you know, I went into this assuming that electors would be a part of that perhaps party elite. And it reaffirmed in some sort of way my faith in democracy that you had all of these people who were able and who who participate in such a vital way in our democracy and to our electoral process. At the same time, it is problematic whenever whenever you have 538 individuals and you don't know who they are. I mean, we know our representatives mm. and our senators before we vote for, before we vote for them. And in many cases, these electors' names are not even on the ballot. The Faithless, the Untold Story of the Electoral College is the name of your new book. That's available anywhere to sell good books or just go online, Amazon. Tell us a bit more about yourself. I'm originally from South Carolina, and I did my undergraduate in South Carolina in at Wofford College. Um, after that, I worked in textile machinery for a couple of years, and I moved to uh, Beijing, China to do my master's degree in international relations at Peking University. Um, after that, I, I spent about two years as a reporter writing uh, different human interest stories about China. I got married over there. And and since COVID has hit, you know, things have become a little bit more difficult. My husband and I have been separated with uh, visa suspensions and whatnot. But I also am very grateful because it has given me the opportunity to to write this book. I mean, I wrote this book in quarantine in Japan. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity to write this book and then of course to be able to get it out there because for me this is one of the most important topics in our, our electoral process and people are kind of mainstream media likes to kind of I think kind of sweep it under the rug without really discussing what we have and what and what are the challenges moving forward. Well you've really done your research. Finally do you care to handicap or take odds on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? Any sense of where it's going? Honestly speaking, with faithless electors in the mix, I, I, I just know that I just believe that that faithless electors will be a factor in that equation. I don't know how great of a factor, but I do believe moving forward to 2020, they will be. So there could be some sensational headlines out of these communities where we have faithless electors. Yes, we could see some sensationalistic headlines. and But more importantly, and this is really what it will come down to, is that you're going to have electors who are going to be absolutely bombarded. They're going to be getting probably death threats, just like in 2016. They probably when they were chosen as an elector, they didn't realize the rights and responsibilities and the dangers that come with becoming an elector. And they're going to become, after November, arguably the most powerful people in the world. 
It's amazing other than yourself and perhaps a handful of others haven't given this uh, these electors any attention. Their lives are being threatened by the time her passions are running high. You wonder, will that change? I, I hope so. And I hope that, um, that it doesn't become necessarily a partisan or polarized topic because electors on both sides, I, I think, need a certain level of, uh, of understanding and protection. Um, you did see some reporting in 2016 uh, Kyle Cheney of Politico did quite a good bit of work on that. That being said, it becomes very quickly um, the this issue of faithless electors. I think it's hijacked into uh, an electoral college versus popular vote debate. And while I understand that's an easy way to frame it, especially for mainstream media where attentions are perceived to be very short. These electors, they will be grappling with some big issues and they will, I think that understanding what the Electoral College is, is, is quite important just for any politically interested American. Well, one thing for sure, it's adding a colorful, fascinating, interesting element to this election and to the last election. And we're going to stay close to it. Maybe we'll be bringing you back on again, Emily, after the election to talk about more Faithless Electors. The name of your book is The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. A great work. Congratulations. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. You can order Emily Conrad's new book, Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College in many places online and from her own website, emilyconrad.com. That's emilyconrad.com. Emily's up on Facebook at the Faithless Book, at the Faithless Book, F-A-I-T-H-L-E-S-S-B-O-O-K. And she's on Twitter at Emily C. Conrad. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.